is it in the water? Eric Weiner contends that some places are just breeding grounds for innovation, but the reasons seem to differ through the ages. A dirty little secret about Florentine genius is that it involved money, and we don't normally think of money and geniuses having that much in common, but they do. Coming up, we'll explore the geography of genius. A friend in Tokyo tells us how Japan is coping with its recession. Despite all that Prime Minister Abe has been doing with his so-called Abenomics program, uh, devaluing the yen, trying to open up Japan to more uh, foreign investment, uh, it just doesn't seem to be working. And guides from Sicily explain the high-spirited ways they celebrate being Sicilian, including the remarkable treats they enjoy on the Feast of St. Agatha. It is a super sweet candy made with ricotta cheese, and it comes in a shape of the breast of St. Agatha. It's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Well, they just can't seem to quite shake off their recession. Tokyo is hoping that playing host to the Olympics four years from now will stir up their economy. An update on life in Tokyo 2016. Plus, Eric Weiner's theory about a geography of genius. That's coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Many of the holiday traditions our Sicilian friends told us about a couple weeks ago were so different from the rest of Italy, I think it's worth exploring what it's like to be born and raised on the spirited island of Sicily. Joining us now are tour guides Mari Accardi and Alfio Di Mauro. Alfio and Mari, thanks for being with us. Ciao, Rick. Ciao, come va? Tutto bene. Tutto bene. Mari. Buongiorno. Grazie, Rick. Mari and Alfio, you both earn your living taking Americans around Sicily. What are the clichés that Americans bring to Sicily that are wrong? Do Americans have misunderstandings about what Sicily is all about, Mari? Yes, maybe sometimes they think that we are stuck in the past, that women are wearing only black clothes, and that also women can go out without their brothers or something like this, that we are very jealous and that we are dangerous, that it never rains, that this is true. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so the one cliche sometimes. is it never rains, but uh, Sicilians <laughs> are more modern than a lot of Americans yeah. think. Alfio, what is your take on what misconceptions Americans might yeah, have? Yeah, I think, Sicily? you know, the majority of misconceptions that Americans have might come from the movies in general. And actually, it is true. If Sicily is in a map, often it is because it became very famous with a certain kind of movie. I'm talking about The Godfather mm-hmm. of uh, Coppola. And in those movies, sometimes you get an idea that the island is a little bit obsolete. Mm-hmm. When we go around the island with tourists, it happens all the time. People are very surprised that that is not the case. And they are fascinated about the beauty and the scenery. And surprisingly, at the end of the stay, they always say, where is the mafia? We didn't see any muscle of the mafia around. Where is it? More than almost any place in Europe, this is one region that is shaped by one image, which is really quite dated. Yeah. I mean, of course, there is organized crime, but when you go to Sicily as a tourist, it's just really in the movies. Yeah. One thing interesting also is America is a melting pot culture with so many immigrants that shape our demographic. 
And it is the poor people, not the rich people, that leave a country in Europe to go to America, and the poorest part of Italy was the South and Sicily. Consequently, in the last century, a lot of Sicilians went to America, and Americans think this is Italian culture, when oftentimes what they're looking at is Sicilian cultures. Is that correct? Yeah, it is absolutely correct. The great majority of them were from the South. They end up going mainly in North America. Mm-hmm. Right after the unification of Italy, between 1880 and 1920, about 70% of them were Sicilian. And then the, the other big minority was Neapolitans. They end up, all of them, entering North America through Ellis Island. They end up in New York, in Little Italy. And they were in the same neighborhood. And what is fascinating is that there was a fusion of different regions in that neighborhood. In Little Italy. In, in Little Italy, New York. Huh. Sicilians, Campani, which is the region around Naples, Calabrese, uh-huh. and then a few others. But this is mostly region. south of Rome. Yes, all it's all Rome. south of Rome. Oh, yeah. okay. And what is fascinating is that the fusion was about tradition, about dialect, about food also. How do I know that? I have two cousins. Actually, I say ciao to them, Larry and Grace. They live in New Jersey. And they occasionally came to visit in Catania, in Sicily, where I live, because their father left from there. And when they speak in dialect, actually, first of all, they don't know if they are speaking in dialect or Italian language. It's a fusion between Sicilian dialect, Mm -hmm. Italian language, Neapolitan, and Calabrese all together. And they have some, what I call, neologism, which I never heard before. So for you as a Sicilian to come to the United States and you see your relatives, your your family, they have a confused understanding of of what Italy is, really, because it's used here. Yes, absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring Sicily right now with the help of Mari Accardi and Alfio Di Moro. Mari, now you're from Palermo, which is a vibrant city and an exciting city. For you, what's a a great festival where we can see all the glory and the color of Sicilian culture? Okay, there are a lot of festivals, especially to celebrate our patron saints, because uh, (laughs) you need to know that patron saints in Sicily are more important than Jesus, uh, than God, than... uh, Pasta, <laughs> more important than everything else. Jesus, God, and pasta. <laughs> yeah. Patron saints supersede those. My, tell me more. Are very important. The patron Not necessarily saint. in the same order. <laughs> no, right? no, no, no. Okay, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, in Palermo, the patron saint is uh, Saint Rosalie. Uh-huh. Then in Catania is Saint Agatha. And in uh, Syracuse is Saint Lucy. Okay. And I love uh, the three of them. And uh, St. Lucy is famous because uh, on that day we eat only arancine. We can't eat pasta and we can't eat bread. So all the bakeries are closed. Really? This is uh, for Santa, the... St. Lucy Day. St. Lucy Day is on the 13th of uh, December. Santa Lucia. Yes, Santa Lucia. Now, aran- what is the thing? Arancina. Uh, arancina, what is that? Little oranges. Little oranges. It's uh, fried rice balls uh-huh. filled with uh, meat or with ham and cheese. Well, the nickname is Little Oranges, but because yeah, they're arancina. orange and round, they look Ar- like a little orange, yes, but they're fried yes. rice. With meat, this is arancina uh-huh. alla carne, ah, okay. or with ham and cheese. And, and this if you is find a Sicilian restaurant bur. anywhere in Italy, you can you can ask for this little orange and get it. Oh, uh, Only in Sicily, mainly. Only in Sicily, okay. Yes. 
Santa Lucia Day. That's December. Yes, uh, but on there the are, 13th there, of December. There must be a, a patron saint for every day of the year. So there's a lot of festivals <laughs> in Sicily. No, but in this day on uh, for Santa Lucia, we eat uh, Cuccia. Only in this day. Cuccia, I tell you the legend. According to the legend, in the 1600s, there was a terrible famine. And so people were starving. And they were praying St. Lucy. And on that day, a ship arrived on the port of Palermo. It was loaded with grain. So people were so hungry that they didn't uh, grind the grain. They simply boiled it and they eat it like this with olive oil. And so that's why for this day with cuccia, that is made with the boiled grain and uh, ricotta cheese with sugar, chocolate chips and whatever you want to. It sounds good. Alfio, is it good? Actually, I never tried it before. Because you're from Catania. Because I'm from Catania. Interesting. So this is near and dear to Mari's heart. In, in Catania, the other side of the island, you're into something else. What's a big festival in Catania? In Catania, the festival is the festivity of Sant'Agata. Sant'Agata okay. is the patron saint of Catania. And supposedly, according to the legend or scriptures, Sant'Agata and San Lucy were cousins. In any case, we are talking about the called proto-Christian saints, uh, like the very uh, beginning of Christianity. It's the third century A.D. Uh, Diocletian is the emperor, persecution against Christians. A lot of people killed, therefore lots of uh, special saints to remember. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And in particular, Sant'Agata was martyred in a very gruesome way. Her breasts were taken off. Mm. Uh, in Catania, there's this incredible celebration that starts on February the 3rd and ends on the day of the festivity, which is February the 5th. It is three days of madness. Hundreds of thousands of people in the streets wearing a white robe and a black hat. And that is a tradition actually that happened in the Middle Ages when maybe the saint, according to the legend, stopped an eruption a Mount Etna that was threatening the city of Catania. And that happened at night, and all of the population woke up during the night in their night robe. That's why people go around dressed that way. But what is interesting about food, in Sicily we have lots of sweets, because the Arab domination introduced the sugar cane in the island. And we, we do a particular sweet called Le Minuze di Sant'Agata, the little breasts of Sant'Agata. That is what Minuza means in Sicilian dialect. It is a power-packed sugar, <laughs> super sweet candy made with uh, ricotta cheese, and it comes in a shape of the breast. So the little breasts of St. Agatha. Yes. Served only at this festival or all year long? Well, now you can find pretty much year long, but especially during the festival. It sounds like a wild time. And this is an example of how complicated the culture and the history of Sicily is. You've got the Arab influence. You've got the Catholicism. You've got volcanoes. You've got a sweet tooth. You've got lots of legends. This is fun for travelers to check into. Yes. Sicily-based tour guides Maria Cardi and Alfio Di Moro are sharing with us what it's like to be a Sicilian right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Rick, can I say one thing about the Arancine? Mari was talking about the Arancine for Santa Lucia, and Mari lives in Palermo, which is on the other side of the island. On my side of the <laughs> island, in Catania, we do Arancine, <laughs> but first of all, we call them Arancini. Mm-hmm. They call Arancine. 
And the shape is not spherical, it is conical. So it's still Be called the little orange, but it's It is conical. called the little orange. The color is the same because it's mm. fried rice, but as the shape of the volcano. Because okay. you're from Catania. Because I'm from Catania, which is nearby the volcano. And when we open Arancino, we say that inside there is the lava because th there's the red ragu meat sauce Perfect. that replicates the color of the lava. When I'm in Sicily, I always go to Etna. And they've always had these eruptions, so the tourist road up to Edna is always a new road, new paved, exactly. asphalt. Mm -hmm. And it's like driving on, a, on some rich person's driveway that's perfect. It's just perfect black and smooth. It gracefully winds up to the top of the mountain where you can walk to the edge, and it's hot on your feet, but you can look down into that, that hot mountain. And then you can almost, I guess you can see Catania from there. You can see Catania from there, And yes. to drive from the top of Etna down to Catania is a very enjoyable drive. And it's clear how close the volcano is to the great city of Catania. And understandably, even your orange ball is nicknamed for <laughs> the volcano. Exactly, yeah. Let's finish off with just each of you giving us, in, in your dialect, a, a welcome to any American that might want to come to Sicily. Mari? Trasissi, trasissi in Sicilia. And what is that in English? It's a, come, come in, come in, come to my house. A big welcome. Yeah. I would say to all of the Americans, Venite in Sicilia, camangiati buone va divitiri. And that means, please come to Sicily, that you will eat the best food in the world, and you will have a lot of fun. All right, I'm on my way. Mari and Alfio, <laughs> thank you very much. Ciao. Ciao, Ciao Rick. Grazie. What do Renaissance Florence and ancient Athens have in common with California's Silicon Valley? Eric Weiner explores the geography of genius. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. And a little later, we're calling a reporter in Tokyo to see what the new year holds for Japan. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Eric Weiner calls himself a philosophical traveler. His obsession is exploring the intersection of places and ideas. As a longtime NPR foreign correspondent and author, he sought the holy in his book called Man Seeks God. Then he searched for the happiest places on earth, and that was a book called The Geography of Bliss. Now, Eric's back with a new book exploring the world's epicenters of creativity, not just in our age, but throughout history. That book, the Geography of Genius. It tracks these intellectual hotspots from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. Eric, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. So, Eric, tell us about your book. Where does it take us and why? Well, it starts off with a different theory of genius, right? Because most theories say, well, geniuses are born through, you know, some genetic fluke. Think of Mozart playing the violin at age three. Or geniuses are made through hard work and sweat, the so-called 10,000-hour rule, but I don't believe either of those really tells the whole picture. I think geniuses are grown in the soil, that the place matters, and it matters a lot more than we think. Hmm. Um, so that's sort of my starting point. It's, it's starting with what I call these genius clusters that appear around the world throughout history. So in other words, Rick, geniuses don't appear randomly, one in Siberia, one in Bolivia. You know, they appear in clusters, in groups, and that's not a coincidence. So Basically, my book sets out to answer two questions. What was in the water back then, mm -hmm. and can we bottle it? You know, what, <laughs> what lessons can we learn from these genius clusters, and, and how can we make ourselves, if not geniuses, 
a little bit more creative. And we're going to look at the places that you feature in your book here. Just briefly, we're going to review Athens, Florence, Edinburgh, Vienna, and Silicon Valley. And the interesting thing that you've just pointed out is, in each case, it's not one incredible Leonardo da Vinci. It's a whole cluster of people. So going way back to the golden age of Greece, this is sort of the the first big storm of creativity and genius. Why Athens and why several hundred years before Christ? And it's a good question, why Athens? Because Athens was only one of several hundred Greek city-states. And if you were a betting person back in, you know, 450 B.C., and you were to choose which one would be remembered today as the cradle of so much, you wouldn't really choose Athens. You know, Sparta was more powerful militarily. Other city-states were wealthier, were bigger. Athens didn't have a lot going for it. But what it did have going for it was a sort of outward view of the world, a sort of expansive view. The Athenians were great seafarers, and they traveled far and wide, and they brought back lots of foreign ideas. And as Plato said, and I'm probably going to butcher the quote a bit, but the paraphrase is, what the Athenians borrow from others, they perfect. Hmm. Uh, And the truth, Rick, is they didn't borrow, they stole. You know, (laughs) and this is one of the great secrets of genius is that geniuses steal. You know, they, they are thieves. The Greeks borrowed um, statue making from the Egyptians and mathematics from other parts of the world. And then, of course, they perfected it. They added their own touch to it. Okay. But it was, it was very much a synthesis culture. So Sparta was sort of the ancient Prussia. Just life was boot camp. Mm, yes. and, and they left nothing. If you go to Sparta, there, there's very little. But Athens, open to the world, and you can see the results when you've traveled to Greece and go to Athens and stand on that Acropolis. Let's go exactly. about 2,000 years ahead now to Florence and the Renaissance, that really means a rebirth to the greatness of the ancients like the Golden Age of Greece. And you think about Florence and my goodness, I mean, you could think of all these Renaissance greats, these household words of, of great artists and thinkers and so on. And it's like they went to the same high school at the same time. Give us a review of the class of 1500 at Florence High School. (laughs) What a class it was, you know. Can you imagine being at the reunion? So what have you been up to, Michelangelo? Oh, I did the Sistine Chapel. How about you, Leonardo? Oh, you know, nothing much, just a Mona Lisa and so much more. Again, a dirty little secret about Florentine genius is that it involved money. And we don't normally think of money and geniuses having that much in common, but they do. Of course, the famous patrons of uh, Renaissance Florence were the Medicis. And the Medicis were loaded. They were like... Bill Gates loaded times 10. And instead of just, not that Bill Gates squanders his wealth, but Mm -hmm. instead of spending it on whatever Gates spends it on or others spend it on, they decided to spend it on art. And they were patrons, but they were good patrons. They knew art and they knew how to choose talent. Lorenzo the Magnificent, Lorenzo Medici, uh, the most powerful man in Florence at the time, is walking down the street one day near his his gardens, and he spots a young stonecutter, not older than 14 years old. The stonecutter's making a statue of a, of a deer, and Lorenzo says, oh, that's, that's very good, but you didn't make the teeth right. The teeth are a young person's teeth, a young deer's teeth, and they should be decayed. The next day, Lorenzo walks by and sees the stonecutter has, in fact, corrected his mistake and done it brilliantly. Lorenzo takes the stonecutter into his fold, into his home, gives him the best teachers, access to the best minds of the day. Mm. And that 14-year-old stonecutter is now today known as Michelangelo. Wow. Um, that's an example of talent scouting. And that's what the Medicis did. They 
could spot talent, and they could nurture it. Nurturing, um, yes. That sounds... Yes. Now, you mentioned, uh, you know, there's just this underlying financial foundation. These are mm-hmm. bankers and merchants first right. who recognize talents, and they were materialists, but not materialists maybe in as crude a sense as they might have been, and they had a taste for the arts and for culture. You know, when I teach people about traveling, there is this reality. If it was wealthy a thousand years ago, it's got good stuff to see today. If it was poor a thousand years ago, there's less to see today. I mean, southern Italy, not a lot of great art and great museums. I mean, it's got its charm, but you go to places where the money was through Germany, it's the trade route that has all of the great art. And in Florence, we see... We don't like to think of that. We have this sort of myth of the starving artist. Starving artists don't produce (laughs) any art. That's not to say that money is all you need, right? Because there's plenty of examples around the world today and in the past of places that were loaded with money but didn't have the taste. They didn't have what the Italians called sprezzatura, which is this great word. It means a squirt of little something extra. That little something extra. And that's what the, yeah, and that's what the Florentines had. They were very, and they still are, very discerning people. I think the Florentines, would they'd rather miss by a mile than by an inch. They can't stand it if something's a little bit off. That whole notion that you got to have the financial wherewithal, it even goes back to, I think, uh, Golden Age Greece because... Previously, everybody was involved in just subsistence, farming or hunting or gathering. But when you have enough affluence where there's people who can do specialties and people who can sit around and think and make art, then you have that opportunity for maybe that sprezzatura that you're talking about to take hold. The author of The Geography of Bliss is exploring a new theory of creativity through the ages in his just-released book called The Geography of Genius. Eric Weiner is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His website is ericweinerbooks.com. That's spelled E-R-I-C-W-E-I-N-E-R. You know, one of the surprises for me, Eric, in your book was, uh, I mean, Florence and Athens, yeah, for sure, Edinburgh. For 40 years, you write, Edinburgh ruled the Western intellect. How so? Well, for this period of, you know, roughly 1760 to 1800, I mean, Edinburgh was where you wanted to be. (laughs) Um, You had people like Adam Smith, the founder of modern capitalism, and David Hume, a brilliant philosopher, and all sorts of artists. I mean, it really was sparking in every direction, and it was unlikely in that it was, you know, up there, way north on the edge of the world, and Mm -hmm. this is, you know, before Skype and everything. But the Scots, they were big into education, and uh, they had a huge literacy campaign the Church of Scotland did, trying to get people to read the Bible, but you know they ended up getting people to read a lot <laughs> more than that, and that sort of got things rolling. It was a very social genius cluster. They all are, but this in particular, it's called the Scottish Enlightenment. Some people joke that it should really be called the Scotch Enlightenment because they drank so much, um, <laughs> and... They would get together, Rick, in these places, like one was called the Oyster Club, and I went to the spot where it supposedly existed, and it's been resurrected by a very resourceful former rugby player, a Scotsman, who says he's trying to resurrect the old Oyster Club. This is where the likes of Adam Smith would get together every Friday afternoon and eat oysters, which was actually peasant food back then. They wanted to show they were men and the people, and drink just boatloads of claret and some scotch, but they favored red wine back then, and talk about ideas in a very interdisciplinary way. You didn't see the the boundaries that you do today. Hmm. I mean, you would have philosophers and, and scientists and, and mathematicians and writers all in the same room, all talking. 
Well, you know, it's very interesting to think, okay, you got John Knox, the great reformer, and translates the Bible or makes sure that people can get their hands on a Bible in their own language and everybody wants to read. Then you got Adam Smith, considered the, the father of capitalism, right? And uh, all that industry. But you also have that social ethic. Interesting that you point out in the book, so many of America's founding fathers have a connection with Edinburgh. Yes. Uh, Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, had studied in Scotland. And often it was a connection with the Edinburgh University's medical school, which was one of the first and certainly the best in Europe at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I write in the book, medicine was the digital technology of its day, and Edinburgh was its Silicon Valley. Hmm. Um, There were amazing advances being made in medicine, and it was, I think, the epitome of Scottish genius, which is ultimately very practical. The Scots were and are very practical. When you think about it, medicine is practical. There's a theoretical side to it, but ultimately it's about helping people and curing people. Mm. And that's what they excelled at. And so you had a lot of American students coming over to Edinburgh. Benjamin Franklin visited Edinburgh and in fact Mm. helped Adam Smith uh, with the early drafts of his famous book, The Wealth of Nations. Uh, And Benjamin Franklin also said, hey, I've got some students for you for the medical school. You should check them out. So there was a, a lot of back and forth and Good ideas are like toddlers. They cannot stay put for long. And right. and the good ideas of Scotland crossed the Atlantic to the colonies. Now, another city you feature is Vienna. And Vienna has two distinct golden ages, right? One around philosophy and one around music. Talk about that. Yeah. It was one of the few places I found that had what I call a double dip of genius. Usually mm. they get one shot out of it and it's all downhill from there. But in Vienna, you know, around 1780, 1790, 1800, you had the musical golden age. You had Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn, and Schubert all intersecting in Vienna at roughly the same time. In fact, Haydn was a teacher of both Beethoven and of Mozart. And so he was sort of the glue, the adult in the room. Papa Haydn, they called him. He was the one that held it together. So you had the musical flourishing. And then 100 years later, boom, you have turn-of-the-century Vienna, which is incredible. Probably the best-known figure to come out of that is Sigmund Freud. But you also had the artist Gustav Klimt. You had writers. You had uh, physicists. You had a lot going on in Vienna. And by then, it was a very different city. It was a huge city of four million people, a city of immigrants. And that is one of the themes in my book. Genius often thrives on immigration and Mm -hmm. people from other parts of the world bringing their fresh ideas. Freud himself was an immigrant, never fully fit in, Hmm. partly because he was Jewish, um, partly because he was just an odd man. But that's the thing about these places of genius is there's always a slightly uncomfortable fit between person and place. Now, the themes of clusters of geniuses getting together and Mm -hmm. jamming, well, that's certainly the case when you got Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn knowing each other and teaching each other. And I can just imagine the jam sessions they would have had and how how that stoked their creativity, and you've got the money. You've got this uh, enlightened sort of patronage by the Habsburgs that helped stoke the music uh, excellence of Vienna. Yeah. You also had another factor, Rick, which is the audience. You had Mm. an appreciative and discerning audience. Music was quite literally in the air in Vienna of 1800. So many people played musical instruments that in apartment buildings they had to work out schedules. (laughs) for who could practice when so that he didn't disturb one another. I love it. The emperor at the time, Joseph, 
played the violin, played other instruments. Uh, so, yes, there was money, but there was an audience that operated on several levels, from the street sweeper who knew his music all the way up to the emperor. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Eric Weiner, and Eric's fascinating new book is The Geography of Genius, and we're whipping through places that, for whatever reason, there was something in the air or something in the cluster of people that got together, and we're analyzing why different places and different times really were so productive from a genius point of view. And in our age, Silicon Valley comes to mind, and we think of that as the digital revolution, but you wrote in your book that uh, the genius of Silicon Valley has little to do with technology. How so? Well, we think of it as technology, but really that's just the product of the genius, right? Hmm. The outcome. That's right. But the process is really what I call idea curation, right? In Silicon Valley, there is a system in place, informal system, but still a system for recognizing good ideas, for killing off bad ideas, and for nurturing the good ones. It is a place that is very good at discernment. It's very good at saying, hey, that is worth funding. And the venture capitalists often are the ones who do that. They are, I think, the Medicis of Silicon Valley. They are the ones who are deciding what gets funded and what mm -hmm. doesn't. But really, the technology is, is just the product. Uh, it's the process of recognizing good ideas, separating them out from the bad ideas, and then finding a pathway for the good idea, saying you should talk to so-and-so and so-and-so. And so. There are a lot of what sociologists call weak ties in Silicon Valley. People know a lot of people, but they don't know any of them particularly well. And that actually is a formula for creative genius. You wrote in your book that uh, Voltaire wrote that uh, wealth and freedom is a prerequisite of any golden age. And you also mm -hmm. say, if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a city to raise a genius. And we've talked about the necessity of having this economic foundation and, and the freedom and the stability to have a hotbed of genius and creativity. Mm -hmm. Do you find that's a sort of a common thread as you look at all of these different places? I do. I, I, in fact, I added to uh, Voltaire's wealth and freedom, uh, I added instability to that. There has to be a bit of that. You know, Graham Greene famously mocked uh, the Swiss by saying, you know, 500 years of peace and democracy, and what have they brought us, the cuckoo clock? In fact, it's actually a Bavarian invention, mm -hmm. <laughs> not even Swiss. But the point is, you need to stir the pot. Um, wealth and freedom is not enough. You, you need a, a degree of chaos, actually. And that was another common thread I found, uh, chaos on the macro scale, and that some of these places were politically unstable. Uh, and on the micro scale, um, Beethoven's desk, total mess. The man was a slob. And Einstein's as well, and his hair. You know, that's not a man who really needed order in every part of his life. A couple of thoughts just to sum up, Eric. Um, as we get more interconnected, does the geography matter less? Hmm. You know, is Silicon Valley sort of the last place of genius? Is that is that your question, in other words? Because... It, They've created this interconnected digital world. Yeah, maybe that's the irony of their genius is that we're all interconnected right. now. And maybe there's still that genius, but it's dispersed. Uh, it just seems like the geography I, I is so I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think, you mm -hmm. know, why do all the people, uh, all these prophets of a placeless future, um, mm -hmm. you know, all happen to live in one place, which is Silicon Valley? Why, mm -hmm. why does that continue to exist? They, they tell us, well, we, we could be in Montana. We could be in Estonia. We could be anywhere. But they're not. They hang out in the same coffee shops. Uh, they ride their expensive bicycles on the same country roads. 
And there is still something about place that matters very much. Uh, one person told me that every iPhone is like a breadcrumb that leads to Silicon Valley. Young, bright people studying mm-hmm. uh, digital technology in China or India, and they get their iPhone. Where do they want to go? They want to go and work in Silicon Valley. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Eric Weiner, and his book is The Geography of Genius. And Eric, I've got to say, it is so stimulating just to read about all of these incredible, perfect storms of genius. <laughs> Do you feel a bit more genius-like now, Rick? I feel a little more um, wonderstruck by places that have that <laughs> whatever is... What was that word in, um, in Florence? Sprezzatura. Sprezzatura, that little something extra. Yeah. So, Eric, thank yeah, you so much and pleasure. best wishes. Thank you so much, Rick. Next, we'll find out what's on the minds of people in Tokyo as the new year gets into full swing. Business reporter Mike DeJong takes your calls at 877-333-7425. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Back in the summer of 2014, the editor-in-chief of Eurobiz Japan magazine reported for us on the ways economic pressures were affecting everyday life for the residents of Japan. With recent data putting Japan officially back into a recession and with a weekend making the country more affordable for foreign travelers, let's update our notes on how things are looking for the year ahead. Journalist Mike DeJong is now a freelance reporter and he's on the line with us from Tokyo to tell us what his colleagues and neighbors are talking about as Japan faces the new year. Mike, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks a lot, Rick. Nice to talk to you again. So what is the latest when we look into the coming year about uh, Japan's economy? We hear a lot about the yen you know, falling and Japan's economic uh, recession. Uh, despite all that uh, Prime Minister Abe has been doing with his uh, so-called Abenomics program, uh, devaluing the yen, trying to open up uh, Japan to more uh, foreign investment, uh, it, it just doesn't seem to be working. And a lot of people are wondering whether, you know, whether it's time for a new, a new person to take over uh, hmm. and come up with a new plan, because initially the Abenomics plan seemed to really work. He came up with three arrows, and the first two arrows really seemed to work and really seemed to attract foreign investment, but that is, has gone by the wayside now. And uh, the third arrow was supposedly going to be deregulation and opening up the marketplace and uh, dropping a lot of uh, import tariffs and going along with that free trade, as I mentioned. Uh, that has yet to take hold, so we'll have to see what that bodes for the future. The yen is down uh, on its historic uh, relationship with the dollar, is that right? Uh, yes, it is. It's way down. It's way, way down. And that, that's helping you know, foreign tourists who want to come here and, and spend their American dollars or their euros or, or whatever. But uh, Japanese tourists are not going the other way. They're, they're staying home and spending their yen here because it's just so much more expensive for them to travel abroad. I think I've noticed that in Europe. You see a lot of Chinese travelers, but you don't see as many Japanese as you used to. So the dropping yen makes the world a little more costly, and it has uh, Japanese working class turning inward and staying home. Uh, how else does the weak yen affect the average worker in Japan? Well, actually, on the positive side, I mean, I don't want to be too negative about things. On the positive side, tourism to Japan is, is up. And right. they're, they're approaching record levels. And hmm. the main tourists that are coming here are from other parts of Asia. Chinese tourists, in spite of the sort of ongoing problems politically between the two countries, Chinese tourists are loving Japan. They're coming here. The low yen is attracting them. They're coming to shop and to dine. And they really enjoy Tokyo and some of the other you know, great cities in Japan. So that's one positive, that tourism to Japan is, is really on the incline. As I mentioned, tourism outbound is on the decline. That's a bit of a problem, but certainly mm-hmm. not for the Japanese. 
You know, I'm impressed how far relations have come between Americans and Germans after the horrible experience in World War II. Has China and Japan really uh, mended things, and is there much uh, residual scarring between the countries because of the World War II experience, or is it just uh, life is good and we're going to travel here and uh, welcome? Well, I think politically um, it's it's still very, very bad, and uh, especially with Prime Minister Abe, who tends to be a, a conservative, sort of a, a right-wing hawk, the Chinese and the South Koreans both have this long-standing dislike for Japan and relating to not only World War II, but prior to that, the colonization of South Korea and uh, parts of China by the Japanese. I think that long-standing political baggage is, is still there, and it, it, it may be getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, on, from a personal level, I think the Chinese and the Koreans, they love to come to Japan, as I mentioned. Right. It's a great place to visit, and they have a lot of fun, but the, the political... Uh, problems uh, still exist. Recently, there was a meeting, a a trilateral meeting between the three leaders of these these Asian countries. And, you know, fences perhaps are are, are starting to be mended from that meeting, but we'll have to see. Well, that's interesting that the the rank-and-file people feel comfortable vacationing somewhere, even if there's stress between their governments. Uh, I think a lot of travelers find that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mike Dijong. For two years, Mike was the editor-in-chief of the Eurobiz Japan magazine, And he's a journalist uh, based in Tokyo, getting us up to date on that scene. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Kaiko is calling in from Salt Lake City. Kaiko, thanks for your call. Hi, Mike and Vic. I'm a travel agent, so I'm interested about the 2020 Summer Olympic hosting in Tokyo, Japan. Mike said that the... Japanese currency is uh, right now is a little bit high for them, so might be good for them to invite the people to come to Japan for the Olympics. So I'm wondering, my client, if we want to go to the Japan to see the Olympics, is it very costly for them, like a hotel and airfares? So Tokyo is hosting the 2020 Olympics. That's a few years away. How are things going with that, Mike, and uh, what are people looking ahead for as far as uh, tourist boom associated with the Olympics? Well, thanks, Rick, and uh, konnichiwa, Kaiko-san. Thank you for your, your question. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the Olympics is a really big deal for Japan, and uh, you know Abe and his government is really putting a lot into uh, developing that event uh, you know, four years down the road. Um, it's going to be something that's really going to be a, a big tourism boost for uh, Japan, the hotels. The travel sector is already um, making plans for this uh, event. I think, uh, Kaiko-san, it's going to be, um, you know, it's hard to look into the future and where the yen is going to be sitting four years hence, but I, I think right now it's a good time to buy tickets to come here. I mean, you can get very uh, relatively cheap uh, airfare. Uh, you can get relatively cheap hotels here, you know, from a, a major city perspective. So um, the 2020 Games is going to be a big boon for Japan. However, they've had a couple of speed bumps recently. They had to scrap and redo the design for the stadium, which was going That's to be right. the, the mm-hmm. most costly stadium ever built for mm. sports oh. in the world. <laughs> so they scrapped. It was like a $3 billion project, and mm. Abe yeah. basically said, no, 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 let's, let's scrap this and, and go back to square one and build something that's more cost-affordable. Also, mm-hmm. they had a big problem with the logo for the Olympics that had been apparently plagiarized from a Belgian company, I believe, and uh, so they had to scrap that as well. So they've had they've had some speed bumps recently uh, regarding the Olympics, but I think overall that is something that everybody here is is excited about. Yes, I'm I'm excited as well. Yes, thank you. And Keiko, did you have another question for Mike? Yes, um, I'm a little bit worried about the 
and Prime Minister Abe's drafting program stuff. You know, I understand that the end of the World War II, Japan signed not to have a military staff, but they're shifting to a little bit a different way, so I'm a little bit scared about that one. You mean he's drafting people into the military and Japan is building up their military now, uh, opposed to yeah. their promise? Yeah. What's your take on that, Mike? Well, we haven't hit uh, the draft as of yet, and that's something that uh, I don't think anybody is really talking about uh, at this point. But, uh, Keiko-san, you you are exactly right. The um, sort of uh, reinterpretation of the Japanese uh, Constitution, in in particular Article 9, uh, which was the pacifist clause, which actually prevented Japan from fielding a military or uh, assembling an offensive uh, military, um, that was changed recently by the Abe government, and uh, they didn't even run it through Parliament uh, properly. They just did this sort of uh, behind the scenes, and a lot of Japanese people, a lot of people here were uh, were upset about this. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, a lot of the conservatives thought it was a very good idea, and they thought this was something that Japan needs to do, needs to stand for itself and stop depending on others, like the United States, mm-hmm. to, to protect mm-hmm. them. But it, it did engender, it did uh, prompt a lot of protests from Japanese people here. So I would say the uh, it's 50-50. People are either opposed mm. or, or against it. Now, the U.S. government thought it was a great idea because the U.S. spends you know, millions of dollars to, uh, <laughs> to defend countries like Japan. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're looking at uh, spending less on, the, on their military budget as well. So I, I think they want Japan to basically you know, start standing on their own. But it, it is a difficult situation for many people. Keiko, thank you for your call. Thank you very much. Thank Bye-bye. you. Arigato. Bye-bye. Arigato, Mike. <laughs> Mike, you're a good example of knowing the social mores of a country to, to communicate with respect and so on, calling uh, Keiko, Keiko-san. Yes, I mean, that is that is an important thing. You must uh, defer to people and uh, and be polite. And that's one of the great things about Japan is the people here are so wonderful and they're so polite and deferential. And uh, the people in Japan are, are wonderful. They really are. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Esther's calling in from Fort Worth. Esther, thanks for your call. You bet, Rick, and always enjoy your programs. Thank you. Uh-huh. And hello, Mr. Gijong. I have two questions, and one, since you're with your business background, um, I've been reading articles about the high stress that many of the Japanese workers are under. Long work weeks, long work days, increased depression, uh, a lot of pressure for performance, and I was wondering if you could address that. And then on a more positive subject, after the Fukushima incident, uh, I understand the focus has been shifted to developing more uh, solar power, renewable energy, use of that. Could you address that, please? Yeah, that is true. And, uh, you know, the government has taken um, really positive steps uh, from an eco-perspective to look at uh, renewable energy sources. It actually, they, they weren't even on the radar prior to the, the Fukushima disaster. I mean, they, the Japanese government had put a lot of its eggs into the nuclear basket. Obviously, that had to change, and they are now looking at renewable resources for their energy future, although some of the, uh, the nuclear plants have recently restarted again. So they are still using nuclear energy. They're just not using it to the extent that they did before. Your first point about stress and uh, that type of thing in the Japanese uh, the workplace specifically, I'll, I'll tell you there is actually a term here which is called karoshi, and it means death by overwork. And they actually have had people here who have passed away 
and they've said that they've died from overwork, and there's a term in Japanese for this. So that gives you an indication on how much stress and how much focus people here put on their jobs. And personally, I think it's overwhelming sometimes. Wow, death by overwork. Esther-san, arigato. Arigato. Arigato gozaimashita. Arigato. Thank you for a great program. You bet. I want to go to Japan. I love traveling in Japan. I think I've never enjoyed eating anywhere as much as when I'm in Japan. I just love, you know, Japanese food's fun here. But in Japan, going out to eat is just an adventure. Oh, it's magnificent. And there are just so many different types of Japanese food that you can have. And, you know, when I talk to people who haven't been here, they think it's all about sushi. Right. Uh, And, of course, the sushi is amazing. But there are so many other, you know, noodle dishes or meat dishes, uh, chicken, pork. Yeah, the food here is, is incredible. And, and much like Europe, it's regional. You can get different types of ramen noodles in, in different places in Japan. Mm-hmm. And uh, There's actually, even in the Yokohama area, there's a ramen museum where you can go and you can taste different types of ramen from different parts of the country. So oh, my goodness. It's, it's, You'd celebrate the differences in ramen from different parts of Japan. Yeah, so the, the ramen from the northern part is a little bit, uh, I guess, more hearty because it's colder up there. And from uh, the western part of Japan, a little bit southerly it's a little bit more spicy it's just wonderful the food here is incredible and they also do foreign food just as good i would say or almost as good as say the europeans or other parts of the world so you can get terrific french italian spanish those types of food here as well this is travel with rick steves we're talking with mike DeJong, and mike for two years was the editor-in-chief of eurobiz japan magazine he's coming to us from tokyo getting us up to date our email is radio at ricksteves.com And Celeste from uh, Princeton in Indiana emailed us, I teach 7th grade geography of the Eastern Hemisphere. One topic we address is the aging of Japan's population and the decreasing labor force due to low birth rate and strict immigration laws. How is Japan tackling these issues and what are the solutions? Yeah, those are difficult uh, problems. They call it the, uh, the, the double demographic whammy, where they're dealing with not only the most rapidly aging population in the developed world, but also... Uh, the lowest birth rate, or one of the lowest birth rates in the developed world. It's, it's a real problem for the Japanese looking ahead to the future. Who's going to pay the pensions? Who's going to pay the taxes in the future? Wow. So they're looking at, at several solutions. Um, Prime Minister Abe wants to get more women involved in the workforce. Uh, Japan also has a very startlingly low amount of, of female participation in the, in the executive offices, in the workforce, in parliament. So Japan uh, is looking towards doing that, and he's actually come up with a system that mandates that companies by 2020 will have to have 30% females in the executive boardroom, in the executive office. So I think that is a good idea. There's also talk that he should look towards more immigration and bringing more people from overseas into Japan to sort of take a little bit of the, the burden off the people here. But that is something that he's been reluctant to do. And he has uh, taken some criticism, or the government has taken some criticism in, in not looking uh, towards immigration. Uh, the Syrian refugee crisis, for example, uh, Prime Minister Abe said that Japan would not be taking any, any of the Syrian refugees. He made that comment to the United Nations back in the fall, and a lot of people were very surprised by that, because not saying that the Syrian refugees would be the answer to Japan's demographic problems, but it's a step in the right direction towards you know, allowing more immigrants into the country. So that I think that is something where they really have to, to open up. Well, my sense is Japan is disinclined to become a melting pot. Uh, do you get that sense? I mean, I think there's a big um, attitude problem there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, when you're, you've been a country that was closed to the world for 
two, three hundred years and only really opened up for the last hundred or 150, it's still difficult for Japan to become that type of melting pot. Some Japanese, you know, consider themselves a, a special race, a special culture. They don't want it to be, quote, uh, you know, polluted, unquote, by, by others. And there, there's still a lot of discrimination and, and, and racism towards other people from other cultures, which is the sort of yeah. downside of, of the Japanese uh, mindset. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that is something that is changing. Um, they are seeing, you know, immigration slowly picking up, but I think it's, it's not enough. And I think, you know, in the future, Japan's population is really, really going to be feeling the pinch. So people are going to have to come from somewhere. If they're not having babies here, then they've got to come from somewhere else, I guess. Yeah, I think it's going to be a matter of just uh, bump up your birth rate or diminish, uh, especially uh, vis-a-vis uh, Korea and China nearby. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, it's not just that Japan that's struggling with the birth rate and, and the aging population. European countries are as well. Well, rich uh, countries. My, my understanding is when you're wealthy, you've got um, you know, lots of money and lots of education. Uh, you live longer and you have fewer children. That's exactly right. And, uh, and I think it's just the post-war baby boom generation as well. You know, we saw such a, such a spike in the population coming out of the war. But you know, a lot of people say it's also part of the, the workplace culture, that people are working too much. and They're too tired to come home and, to be frank, to make babies. You know, when you're, when you're at the office until 10 or 11 every night, um, there's not a lot of baby-making going on here, frankly. So that's another thing that the people are saying, that if they relax that somewhat and, and allow perhaps people to come home at a reasonable hour or mm-hmm. encourage people to come home at a reasonable, reasonable hour, then maybe we'll see a, a spike in the birth rate. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mike Dijon. And Mike, is, uh, for two years, has been the editor of uh, Eurobiz Japan magazine. And, uh, you know, probably... As much as any country on the planet, if you're going to be traveling there, uh, learning about the culture and sightseeing, it behooves you to read up on the culture itself before you get there, because Japan is a, is an exciting place to explore. It's a beautiful culture, but it's got a lot of a lot of unique quirks that uh, the typical traveler might be oblivious to, and that's a real loss if you're lucky enough to be going to Japan. Yeah, I like to say it's diametrically opposed to Western culture in many ways. I mean, it really mm-hmm. is the whole collectivist mindset versus our very individualistic way of thinking in the West, particularly in North America, not so much in Europe, but uh, certainly right. in the U.S. and Canada. It's, it's totally the opposite of the way um, the Japanese think. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to experience it. I mean, you don't have to agree with all of it. Right. And there's some things that, in fact, frankly, they do better sure. so, than we do. So it, it's a real... I think people should come here and experience that ah, at least once it, in their life. It's an exciting place to travel. I would say it's a place that doesn't get as much attention as it deserves from American travelers. Uh, it's quite straightforward to go to Japan, and you'll certainly have some surprises and uh, an opportunity to better understand a complex and a rich culture. Mike DeJong, thank you so much for your work, and, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Rick. Nice to talk to you. Arigato. Arigato Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeley, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at National Public Radio for their help this week. You'll find more to each week's show online, including how to send a question or comment to Rick and his guests. Look behind the radio tab at ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone 
believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves Online Travel Store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian Phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.